book of Acts tonight as we talk about going forward in our faith. And turn me to Acts chapter 18. So I want to look at those first 17 verses. I ask you to stand in God's honor as I read aloud. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, native of Pontus, who'd recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. Because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome, Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ. But when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue ruler in his household, Believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard him believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. No one going is, is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him into court. This man they charged as persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to the Jews, If you Jews were making a complaint against some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about the words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he had them ejected from the court. When they all turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue ruler, and beat him in front of the court, Gallio showed no concern, whatever. Let's pray. Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you, Father, that you love us, Lord, in spite of us. We forget who we are. We forget whose we are. We forget the resources that we have that are in you, Lord. We get weak in our own strength. Thank you that you want to encourage us in those times. As you did the apostle, Lord. Sometimes we think of him as this powerful man of God that never backed down. That lived this romantic life of a missionary and constant revival. But Father, that is just not real. So, Father, as we look at your word, guide us. In your name we pray. Amen. Uh, there's an old story about uh, people were looking through the devil's toolbox of what he used against God's people. And there was one tool that set off limits. And as they began to investigate and see the tool, it was discouragement. And the devil said, because when a person is discouraged, when God's child is discouraged, I can work in my other strategies. To defeat him and and to bring him down. Uh, I just want to look at three areas where Paul could have felt discouraged 
the discouragement of his ministry. The first was simply the large strain of the work. He lived in a place where people were constantly living for the moment. That they were trying to find the thrill of the moment. Sounds a lot like often what we see around us. Uh, right in the middle of Corinth, there was a statue to worship the god Aphrodite, which you know spoke of no boundaries for pleasure and and the the love goddess and and, and so Paul was in this culture and, and he was working and 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 there was a great strain around him as he looked for you know how how do I start how, where, where do I, I reach out to these people who don't even have a foundation. And, and, you know, they're, they're hard and, and where they are is, is so different from where I am. So, so there was this large strain that, that was a burden to Paul. And sometimes, you know, it's easy for us to feel that strain of, if you're not careful, you know, I'm responsible for everybody I'm around, everybody I meet, and, and, you know, that person's got to come to Christ. And, and you have to come to a point where you understand that our job is to sow, our, our job is to plant, but it's God's job. To bring the harvest. It's, it's God's job to bring people to himself. We just have to be his vessels. We, we can't control that side of it. Secondly is the little success of the work. Often we think of all these great things that Paul did. But man he struggled. And, and we saw even in this text here. Where he, he got so frustrated here. He said you know I'm, I, I'm leaving this place. I'm going to my primary ministry of working with the Gentiles. In other words, he's saying to these guys, you're not listening. You don't care. He says here in verse 6, your blood be on your own heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. He saw so little of what he wanted to see. And, you know, there's many times saying I pray. And I'm sure you guys know what I'm saying. It's like, God, I just want to see lives really impacted by you. And it seems like I see a lot less of that than I want to see. God, I, I don't want to see a time where we all get together and there's this excitement. We walk out the door and it's like letting the air out of a balloon. And there's no evidence of lives that are changed that continue to walk with you in power. Man, I want to see people who, you know, when they leave the religious gathering, they love Jesus. And I don't have to ask if they know Jesus or, or if they're serving Jesus. It's obvious. And that's just, that's what I want to see. I don't want to have to say, is he saved? Is she saved? I want to, I don't want to play that game. I want their lives to be so transparent and so full of the spirit of Jesus Christ. That's not even a question that has to be asked. And as Paul looked around, there were many times that I bet he experienced discouragement because he wanted to see that. He longed to see that, and he saw a lot less of it than he would have preferred to see. And then uh, one last one's a lonely service of the work. There are times when you're in a tough place that you just feel alone. There are times where you feel like there's nobody to talk to. Or there are times in the service of the Lord, there's nowhere to turn. 
And, and Paul went through some of those experiences where he, he felt alone, where he felt uh, beaten down. But thank be to God, I don't want to spend a lot of time with the discouragement part of it. As we look in this section of Scripture, I want to look at three areas where there's encouragement given to Paul. As we need to be encouraged. And the first one in these first five verses is the partnership of friends. And and so let's look at these. uh, You open up in chapter 18 of his friends. He says, after this, Paul left Athens. He went to Corinth. So uh, he left a place where he had a little bit of comfort zone and he went to a new place, which is always some difficulty. And while he was there, God brought into his path a special couple. It says, he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. They were forced as Jews to leave Rome, and so they came to this place, Corinth. This new place, this place where they, they wanted to have something in common with somebody. They, they wanted to feel a sense of somebody they can share God with. And, and Paul brought them together. And as we see in the text here, they were both tent makers. that They worked side by side and, and so they labored in the day. And, and Paul ended up sharing time with them. It says in verse 3 that he was a tent maker as they were. And he stayed with them. He worked with them. And then every Sabbath, he reasoned in the synagogue trying to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. It's interesting, as I looked through here um, about Aquila and Priscilla, a couple of things stick out about them. Obviously, they must have had a, a love for the Lord. And God began to work in their lives and bonded uh, this couple together with Paul because we discover, as we read in here, that there was a church, I think it's 1 Corinthians 16, I believe. It says that there was a church opened in their homes, in their home. Um, sixteen nineteen. It, it says, The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord, and so does the church that meets at their house. So they opened up their home, and their home became not just their home, it became a home for God's people who would, who would come together. And so Paul, he had this bond with this couple that was so encouraging, that so ministered to his heart. Then in Romans chapter 16, we see at some point they must have been able to go back to Rome. You know, Rome was where, he end, where Paul ended up, last place he was when he ended up being martyred. Verse 3, we... See, as Paul closes this letter to the church at Rome, he says, Greet, verse 3 of 16, Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. They became fellow co-workers that were willing to risk it all because of a love for Jesus Christ and a love for God's people. That developed. Man, there was a bond that encouraged Paul that was shared with this couple. One more point here I thought was interesting as I studied. Um, Aquila and Priscilla are mentioned seven times in the New Testament. The first time, Aquila is mentioned first. 
the other six times Priscilla's mentioned first. So, hey ladies, for those of you, you know, the godly woman came ahead of her husband. And why is that? Well, some commentators said, you know, maybe she just had the kind of personality, she was just such a blessing to the church. That although that was kind of unorthodox in that day for the wife to be mentioned for the husband, maybe she just made such an impact. That was a blessing. There have been uh, so many godly people that have blessed us through the years. I think of uh, what came to my mind was this dear couple when Cindy and I first got married. And we served on staff in this church in Moorhead City. And there was this couple there. I'm sure through the years I mentioned them here. Mac McNeil and Dee Dee McNeil. Mac was a very quiet, dignified man. Good Christian man. Loving Christian man. His wife was a ball of fire. Dee Dee McNeil. And people were a little afraid of Dee Dee. Because Dee Dee was very outspoken. And I can remember back, I was on staff in this church, and sometimes, like, during Sunday school, you'd be like, you know, if you're walking down the hall, Dee Dee might grab somebody and pull them in a room. You know, I'd see that and think, what is Dee Dee doing in that room with these people? One day, I got pulled into a room. (laughs) I thought, "Uh uh-oh, what have I done? I have been kidnapped by Dee Dee McNeil. It ha- what happened? I guess there had been some criticism. There was a guy in the church that he had kind of gotten out of church. And we had become friends, and I would go in the day and play tennis with him. Well, I guess people were grumbling in the church with it. You know, the this youth guy is going out and playing tennis with this guy. Well, she pulled me in the room. She goes, Todd, I'm here to tell you that I am so glad you are playing tennis with him. Because he's out of church, he needs to know that we love him. He needs to know that he matters. And that's one of the most important things you do here at this church. Don't you ever let anybody tell you to stop playing tennis with him. You hear me? I said, yes, ma'am. Um, you know, I look back at her. And, and like I said, she had a little bit of earthiness about her. But man, we respected her. Because I think deep down, and sometimes she, if she did offend somebody, I didn't know this about her. She was quick to apologize. Sometimes I think when she pulled people in those rooms, it was, I'm sorry, I was out of line. I shouldn't have done it that way. Praise be to God for those kind of people that impact the church. We don't have details about Priscilla. But she's mentioned in an unusual manner. And I have a feeling she was one of those Dear, dear godly ladies who impacted God's people in a profound way. That made such a huge difference. I also want to mention, as as he goes on here, he also mentions other friends, older friends that he had known from the past who came were an encouragement to him. It says, when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, he mentioned these two. Um, You know, it was interesting uh, as I looked up Silas. Of course, Silas goes back, you know, they went on a joint mission trip with Barnabas and uh, Silas and John, Mark and Paul. And there was a sharp disagreement. You guys remember the scriptures. And it says that Paul took off with Silas and they became missionary partners. I think the scripture that speaks to me is Silas. 
is they were preaching the gospel and they get arrested and they're thrown in jail and it says they're flogged. And, and I mean, they're severely beaten and they're bleeding. And, you know, it would be so easy. I think, Lord, I'm a weak Christian. I don't know about the suffering stuff. It's so funny when Cindy and I um, served in New York, there was this one guy, uh, Mike. I can't remember Mike's last name. But his terror, his fear was that he was afraid that he was going to um, someday have to suffer for Jesus. And his biggest fear was they were going to hang him upside down and pull out his toenails. I don't know where that came from. But I'd hear that from Mike. Oh, uh, Pastor Todd, what do you think? Uh, can you think I could stand up for Jesus if they were ripping up my toenails? You know, what do you think? Anyway, I don't know what brought that up. But I just got to think about suffering and, and what you go through with that. But Silas, you know, it would be so easy. I could see, you're, you know, they beat you. They've stuck you in this jail cell. And, and, and you're, you know, there's all this pain. It'd be, oh, God, why did you do this to me? God, why did this happen? I was so faithful to love you, God. You know what it says? I think it's Acts. Let's see if it's Acts 16. It's so funny. I had I was studying this. I'd made some new notes and I was going over it and I saved the wrong uh, version in here so I don't have it in my notes here. So we'll see how my memory holds up. The Lord is so kind. Acts 16. I think it is. Yeah. Man, that's good. Thank you, Lord. Acts 16, 25. Yeah, really? Acts 16. I'll start at about a 20. It says, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. Isn't that cool? And the other prisoners were listening to them. Talk about a witnessing opportunity. These guys are nuts. They're bloody. They've been beaten and they're singing. What is it about these guys? No wonder they were listening. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken as once all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up when he saw the prison doors open. He drew his sword about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself, we're here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be saved, you and your household. And, and then he says, they spoke the word of the Lord to him and all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. He was the jailer responsible for guarding them. He, you know, all this singing, but God changed his heart and he began washing out their wounds. He began caring for them. I love this. Um, (laughs) Then immediately he and all his family were baptized. Not just the jailer, his family, man. The jailer brought them into the house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. How could Paul not have bonded with Silas? I mean, something like that is so powerful. It, it's so changing. It, 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 just, it just builds faith in you. It's like, God, this is a God experience. This is not a coincidence. This is a God incidence. And, and so there was this bonding that happened between Paul and and Silas, and I'm sure just the, the thought of being with a, a, a brother in Christ like that, 
to come and to encourage you and, and to spend time with you that, that was sold out and had that kind of a love uh, makes a difference. And then I thought about Timothy. You know, it tells us in the book of First Timothy, uh, of course, Paul referred to him as his son in the faith, that his mother and his grandmother were godly. And Paul made mention of them. Then it mentions his dad, and it says that his dad was a Greek. In other words, his dad was not a believer in God. His influence came from his mother and from his grandmother. So there was this bond with Paul. Paul became a, a father in the faith. He, he saw what a godly man was like from looking at Paul. And there was this father-son type of connection that happened between Paul and Timothy. When God was able to be with Timothy, it was seeing his son. He thought of Timothy like his own son. I thought of, you know, I grew up in a home. Um, I didn't go to church. My parents didn't go to church. Um, I loved my parents. I just didn't know what that was like. And I thought of some... Uh, different men uh, in the faith that have been such an inspiration to me. Um, Jerry, not Hyder, H-A-Y-T-E-R. Jerry Hyder, H-Y-D-E-R, um, a dear a dear man. Matter of fact, he's still on staff in Sevierville now. That's where he is. But uh, he was the one that we started memorizing Scripture together, and he was just such a blessing to me. And then... You know, I could go on a couple of, of just loving older pastors, Clell Gibson, Ray Lenville, that, you know, everybody loved. And first I thought, oh, you know, they're driving me crazy. But now I look back, you know, they were just trusting God. They were able to relax a little bit. I was a little high strung. And I learned looking back at them. And then I think um, later on, uh, the first church I was the head pastor, senior pastor, whatever terms I want to use, or as one Presbyterian friend of mine used to say from Scotland, I'm the only pastor. <laughs> but say, you know, in the church, and, and the guy that was the director of missions, Alex Booth, at one time he was president years ago of Fruitland Baptist Institute. We got to be friends. And he got to come here, this poor, grumbling, immature young pastor, and he would just listen to me. He should have probably... Let me have it, you know. But he was just so patient to me, kind. And I remember when he died of cancer, it really, you know, really turned me a flip. And, uh, you know, I could go on several others. I guess the last one I remember was uh, when we were in Richmond, the director of missions there was working on his doctorate, and he wanted to do a study for his doctorate where he invited 12 ministers, and I happened to be one of the lucky 12 to do a project where we did stuff together and became close. And there was a, a guy in there. Um, I don't think we had anything in common. Um, we were different in almost every way. Political preferences. Uh, you know, just, I won't go into it, but I never thought we'd be friends, really. But it was amazing how God gave me a real, uh, we just bonded. And, uh. Bob Boggs, I've mentioned him before. What a dear man. He is one of the greatest encouragers. I would call Bob, and I'd be down about something. Boy, I'd be missing. I'd say, Bob, 
I'd go on about five minutes and he'd say, Boy, those people in your life, they sure are lucky to have you around. You're such an encouragement. I'd say, now, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're you're changing the subject. (laughs) Let me grumble a little bit. (laughs) But the point of the matter was, he just wanted to stop and say, Stop. Remember, God loves you. Hey, 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 get, get back on track a little bit here. You know, you're getting off the rails a little bit. Let's get back, get the train back on the rails. Um, we developed a friendship. Matter of fact, I believe, I was thinking about it as I was working on this. Probably somehow Bob had something to do with me ended up here. Because, you know, you wonder, how do you get to where you are? And at the time, we were actually out of church. We weren't serving a church anywhere. And uh, next thing I know, the director of missions there says something to Ron Gilbert, and somehow you guys end up on my resume. Anyway, God works in mysterious ways, and so we ended up here. But I got to thinking about that, and I have a feeling, knowing old Bob, he was putting putting some messages in the ears of these people because he knew them all. Matter of fact, his uh, he was pastor to pastors in the Dover Association. And, uh, oh, it's been probably two years ago now. You know how you lose track of time. And I hadn't talked to Bob in a while. I just called him out of the blue. Well, I called his wife, Barbara, one day. And she said, oh, Todd, I have been trying. I have thought about you so much. I wanted to call you, but I lost your phone number. She said, Bob died a few months ago. And I had no way to call. And I was stunned. And she said that when he turned like 80 years old, the director of missions asked him to step down as pastor to pastors. And Barbara said, I couldn't hardly tell anybody else this, but I can tell you because y'all were close. He was mad. <laughs> he didn't want to step down. And uh, it really hurt him. But it was interesting because she said they threw a party for him. I wish I'd known about it. I might have tried to go. Where everybody came and, you know, said goodbye to Bob and all that stuff. And a month later, she told me about it. He had a major heart attack and, and died. And she was with him. Um, but, you know... He was a father in the faith. And you guys could tell me stories like this, I know. The point is, uh, man, there are people that are precious, aren't there? People that mean the world. This was what encouraged Paul. This is uh, what encouraged him. Now, next part, uh, some positive results. So just read these quickly. Uh, back to Acts 18. Starting at... Verse into verse five, um, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was Christ. And when the Jews opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest. Your blood be on your heads. I'm clear of my responsibility. I'll go to the Gentiles. Paul left the synagogue, went next door to the house, did his justice. And uh, anyway, it says Christmas synagogue rulers, entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard him believed. And were baptized. Um, you know, he had one of those moments in in the hard stuff where God encouraged him with positive circumstances that uh, ministered to him. I read about one minister took him twelve years in order to kind of make a headway. A lot of people were wanting him to leave. He kept trying to fight against it. And finally, after 12 years, uh, it started turning a corner. <laughs> and here's what he said. Uh, um, 
in this state of things, I saw no remedy but faith and patience. The passage of Scripture which subdued and controlled my mind was this, the servant of the Lord must not strive. It was painful to see the church, with the exception of the aisles, almost empty. But I thought if God would only give a double blessing to the congregation that did attend, there would be on the whole as much good done as if the congregation were doubled and the blessing limited only half the amount. This comforted me many, many times when without such a reflection I should have sunk under my burden. Um, we can dwell on the negative or we can stop and remember how we're blessed. We can dwell on the empty pews or we can thank God for those who sit in them before us, can't we? Why is it so easy to, to dwell on what we don't have instead of to remember what we do have, right? This is from Reader's Digest. Oh, I don't have it in here. Doggone it. That's part of what I didn't say. But anyway, I'll try to do my little summary, which would be bad, I know, but I'll try. Uh, in Reader's Digest, this guy had written, he said it was the difference between a hummingbird and a vulture. A vulture flies around looking for dead things to eat things that are already dead, whereas a hummingbird goes to the flowers and takes the nectar from the living flowers. And the whole point of this was simply, you know, they're both birds in the desert. They uh, see things quite differently. You know, we can be like the vulture. We can look around at what is past. We can worry about where Jesus, you know, now is not at work and beg him to work there. Or we can turn like the hummingbird where there is life. Whereas there's spirit of God and the power of God and there's positive results. And we can put our hearts and minds there. And camp out. And thank him for his blessings. And that's what we need to do. We need to thank him for what we have. And one last one here. The promises of God. Um, uh, it's really sad. As time goes on. Less and less people know anything about this book. We live in a culture where, you know, I had read um, almost half of the people. It's hard to believe. I think it said 40. This, is a, this was a study George Barna did in 2002, something else I didn't say. 40% of the people then couldn't name the four Gospels. There were other things. That's tragic. And I could go on, um, man, God's promises, getting connected to God is, is such a part of the book. So it's such a part of, of getting to know what he has to say and, and, and beginning to, to have that kind of mind and heart that comes, you know, as it says in Romans 12, too, as we've been looking through Romans, do not be conformed any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and prove what God's will is as good, pleasing, and perfect will. The mind is transformed through here. I love what uh, Charles Spurgeon once said. He said, man, I want to be a preacher who loves the Bible so much that if they were to um, take some of my blood and test it, that um, it would be bibline in the testing. And... That's a heart that God begins to change us to a point to where we're, we begin to think as he thinks, see as he sees, 
and have his heart. Um, let's look at the, some of these promises real quick as I get ready to close. I had no idea I'd be this long-winded. But that happens to preachers, doesn't it? Happens to y'all too, sorry. Uh, 9 through 11. Um, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Uh, it's great when he reveals his promises to us and he speaks, isn't it? He says, do not be afraid. I'm going to stop there a minute. Do you realize that that is the most common promise in the Bible? Do not be afraid. Or like the King James, fear not. That is the promise repeated more often than any other promise. Why is that? I think because we're a bunch of scaredy cats. So often fear keeps us from experiencing what God wants us to experience. And so he says here, and I think he speaks to us. Don't be afraid. Trust me. Trust me. And notice he says here, um, he says, keep on speaking. Paul, just trust me. Just do what I've called you to do, buddy. Do not be silent. And then he says, I'm with you. Another great promise. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. What a great promise. And then he says, no one is going to attack and harm you. And of course, this is a specific promise here. Paul, while you're here in this place, you're going to be safe. And I love this part. He says, because I have many people in this city. And that's a blessing too. I'm grateful for Kingsway. But I'm also grateful that Kingsway is not all the Christians in Bristol. There are a lot of people that love Jesus around us. I'm thankful for all of them. And so Paul stayed for a year and a half teaching them the word of God. As he went on with partnership of friends, the positive results and the promises of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. We all get discouraged sometimes, Lord. As we say, I've bought the t-shirt myself, Lord, and worn it. Uh, But thank you for the encouragement before us. I thank you for the encouragement of your people, those friends, Father, that you bring into our lives that infuse courage. Thank you. Thank you, Father, for those times where we see you work that encourages so much, God. Thank you, Father, for the promises that you give, Lord. What great promises are in your word. And they're not there just to read. They're there for us to experience you. So, Father, as we take some time, what we call invitation or response. Father, may we see you. This is the week we call Holy Week. It is a week of hope. I know it doesn't start out that way. I know it moves toward the cross. But I'm so glad it doesn't end there. There is the resurrection. And Father, we have all to be hopeful for. And Lord, as we prepare to sing, um, what do you want of us, Lord? Call us back to you. That we may serve you and love you and seek you with a heart that knows you're there. And that you have something you want to do, Lord. And amazingly enough, you have decided to include us in the work. You're awesome, God, and we love you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.